Health Matters with Karen Key. On the show this evening, we'll be taking a look back at some of the highlights from the show over the last year. After the death of yet another friend from lack of condition and too much weight, actor Tim Pluman got together with a group of friends and decided to get healthy. The outcome of that is his book, Fitness for Old Farts, and I'll be chatting with Tim about his journey to a healthier lifestyle. And then we're on to technology. Christian DeZio, sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems, will be telling us about the Lodox Scanner. And this is a time-saving, full-body digital X-ray imaging device, which was developed right here in South Africa. I'll be chatting with Karen Moss, founder and director of Steps Charity, about clubfoot. And that's a lower leg deformity of unidentified causes that occurs in otherwise healthy infants. And then we catch up again with Jenny Wright, coordinator of Milk Matters, an organization promoting the donation of human breast milk. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening, or you miss a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, after the death of yet another friend in his 50s due to heart failure resulting from lack of condition and too much weight, Tim Pluman and a group of his friends formed a fellowship of old farts to ensure that the same doesn't happen to them. Well, his book, Fitness for Old Farts, is the outcome and proof that the program they followed really does work. Tim, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello, Karen. Hi, nice to speak to you. Well, just really what we were talking to the doctor just before you about exactly is what you discovered when your friends were dropping like flies all around you. Yeah. Well... You know, the point is that when you do have friends who die suddenly and that they're your same age, it kind of brings mortality to to your face, you know, and opens your eyes a bit wider. Yeah, I mean, at one point you were starting to, well, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, who's next? You know, it's sort of uh, quite a scary situation. Yeah, and I think what's really scary about it is when you, as I say in the book, when you're sitting around with friends that you've known for 30 years and more, and you don't see them aging because you see them so often, so that aging process is slow. And when these sudden deaths of friends happen and you kind of find yourself looking at your pals thinking, okay, so who's going to be next? Uh, the frightening point is you know that they're actually looking at you and thinking the same thing. Well, I have to say page 138 was my favorite page in the book. Page 138. Yes. Which, which page is that? Well, you, uh, it start, there's two pictures of you in, in, on page 138. Ah, the, yes, I've just turned to it. The yeah. second, you look 20 years <laughs> younger, Tim. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal it's what happened to you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. So how did this get started? I mean, because your friends initially weren't that keen on, I mean, I think it was Mick. I laughed. I mean, this book, it, it's quite a serious book if you're reading this book. It gives you all the eating plan and the exercise plan, but it's also hysterical funny and your friend Mick was really not all that keen yeah no I, I mean you must know that Mick uh, as it describes you know Mick really feels that a man over the 50 the most exercise a man over the age of 50 needs is to blink you know <laughs> that's his, his idea of that need you know they've been to a gym before and people are very frightened of things that they don't know um, and uh, I, I, what's so great about this whole what I say about the book is it's a, it's a very funny book about a very serious subject uh, and for me the, the the most dramatic thing was seeing myself, uh, seeing the development and what you can possibly do in 12 weeks, uh, which is the process of that this book lost. Obviously, you train on from then once you know. But it is a, it's a rejuvenating process. You, you get younger, uh, and not only in body, but in mind as well. It's an extraordinary process. You know, with weight training, resistance training, one of the things I, I say to people, I'm doing a speech tomorrow morning at Finley's Breakfast, but one of the things I keep saying to guys, uh, older guys, is you must see there are things that begin to happen that you wouldn't expect. For example, your periphery vision gets better, which is an extraordinary thing, but it's a youthifying so as you're getting a more muscle on and, and getting rid of that fat layer that's hanging around there like a duvet, you're, you're actually regressing the years physically uh, and mentally. Well, if anyone's sort of in doubt about whether they should start doing this plan, just get, get the book, turn to page 138, and just have a look at the two <laughs> pictures of Tim. You will be starting the plan tomorrow. It, it's actually quite a phenomenal change. I actually can't get over it. But the book itself, what then prompted you to put it all down in a book? 
Well, as you know, having read the book, that, mm. uh, that it started with, with the death of our friend Bill yes. Flynn. And, mm. and uh, it really w- it was a perfect storm for me because <clears throat> I had always been very fit uh, over the years doing various shows. And, of course, Defending the Caveman being the last one, the major big show that I'm doing. Uh, and I needed to, to go to gym and stay strong. Uh, and then um, I gave up smoking, uh, which I had done for 30 years, which was incredibly hard for me to do. It took enormous amounts of willpower from my wife to get me to give up smoking. And, um, but giving up smoking meant that I had a license to eat whatever I wanted to to get rid of the, the, the smoking problem. Uh, and I was still going to gym at that stage, which was fine. But then I tore the meniscus in my left knee and had to go for an op and have the meniscus removed. So suddenly it was the perfect storm. I could eat whatever I liked to give up smoking, and I could do no exercise because of my, my knee. And I just ballooned. And, and as what happens with everybody, you'll know, if you stop something, it tends to go onto the back burner, and then I'll start next week. Well, no, it'll be next week, and then I'll you know, finally get to it. I ballooned, and I put on um, 10 kilos in, in no time at all. And it was at that precise point that uh, my friend uh, Bill and Jonathan Rand both, uh, both died, both aged 57. Uh, and so it was the perfect opportunity. You, you have to make a decision. I'm going to either do something about it, why well, not? And either decision is fine. You know, it's up to you. But if you decide to do something about it, then you've got to go the full hog. Uh, so I was in that position where suddenly uh, I was out of shape. I needed to get back into shape. I had a bunch of pals who wanted to do the same thing and wanted my help to do it. And um, we said, I thought, well, you know, here's the perfect opportunity to help people, old farts like me, who don't have a clue and don't know what to do and and. And here's the opportunity to show them what can be done, how it's possible to get into shape. Uh, and, and hence the book came about. But you can't call yourself one of those people anymore, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think old fartness is a state of mind. I think being an old fart is actually uh, like a badge of honor. You know, there's a, it's, it's a great thing getting to be an old fart. You know, suddenly you don't have to care about certain things. Yeah, I know. You don't have to worry about modern music. I mean, really, it bores me to tears. Mm. And I don't, it doesn't matter that I don't worry about it. So it's a, it's a, it's a bonus. But the one thing, though, just as an, adv- an advisory, I think, before people start going on any sort of exercise regime, they should consult their doctor first. Well, that's what I say very strongly mm. in the book. I say is everything, this book will give you, hopefully, the motivation and the knowledge to do something positive. And the book reaches, you know, it goes over five different levels of fitness, so from very simple exercise to pretty complex stuff. But, uh, and it gives you all of the, uh, the diets, the foods, the recipes. There's some wonderful recipes in the book on the low GI diet, which is the diet that I'm on. Uh, and, uh, and it gives you a plan of how to select what weights to use for what machinery and shows you how to do it. So all of that is in the book. But what it says in every one of the guys, to every guy that was in the book or everybody who's ever talked to me about it, I say, go and check with your GP first, especially if you're over the age of 50. Go see your GP, have a, have a test, see what, what they think. And if you're capable of doing it, then do it. And interestingly, I mean, if you're wanting to get started the, the, with, with Mick, for example, you mm. actually worked out a little plan for him to get him started. So you got him to do some really basic things, sort of walk to the end of the street and eventually by the end of the week, try and walk around the block. And, yeah. you know, very basic stuff, lifting a, um, a, a what is it, a plastic two liter bottle with, of water up to yeah. shoulder level. So really basic things just to kind of get him into the, the mindset that he was starting to do something. Well, you've got to understand that, 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 that doing exercise has to become a regular everyday event it can't be i'll do it this week and then not do it again so giving them some very basic what i did for mick was i said look just simply get up in the morning and drink a glass of water then walk with determination to the corner of the street and back before coffee and breakfast and go a little bit further every day with the aim of getting around the block by the end of the week i mean that's pretty simple yeah you know perform at least five push-ups before lunch aim to reach 10 by the end of the week perform at least five sit-ups before dinner aim to reach 10 by the end of the week then walk to the corner and back. I like this, the morning one, after dinner at night. And before you're going to bed, stand with your back pressed against the wall and using both hands, lift a two-liter bottle of water up to shoulder level and down 15 times. Relax, do it again, and relax and do it again three times. So try that for a week. And what it did for, for, for Mick was realize, of course, Mick, Mick didn't do it at all. He, he, managed, <laughs> he managed one walk, I think, or two walks. He, he managed to drink two liters of Coke and do one sit-up or something. You know. And blinked in between, you know, I mean, yeah. Which is just typically, typical of a lawyer. Mm. But, um, 
but the point being, what I was trying to do was show him that this has to become something that becomes part of your routine. And I stress strongly to guys uh, over the age of 50, if you can afford it, obviously, but it's vital. Go to a gym. Don't think I'll do this at home because you won't. You'll do it on day one. By day four, you'll be going, I'll do it tomorrow. But if you go to a gym, when you walk into a gym, the only thing you can do there is either sit and drink coffee or exercise. And most people will laugh if you sit and drink coffee, so you'll exercise. Where did all the ideas come from to put this together, the, the plans? Well, four of the plans, four of the five plans are mine. Uh, you know, I've been training um, quite r- rigorously and, uh, uh, from the age of about 39 um, when I suddenly realized that I needed to do, I, I can remember so clearly getting off, off, off stage uh, and thinking, I'm absolutely exhausted and I've got to do this again tomorrow. And it was simply because, A, I was smoking way too much. B, I was eating entirely the wrong foods, and C, the only exercise I was getting on stage. So slowly, over time, your fitness levels begin to drop and drop and drop, and then they start paying off with aches, with pains, with pulled muscles, etc. And um, I realized at that age I had to do something about it. And never having been to a gym, I went and I got myself some trainers, I got myself some professional advice, I went to the doctor, went in and started training properly. And then I really took it seriously. So over the years, and I've trained for all sorts of different shows, you know, uh, having to be lean, having to, I had to put on weight for shows and then lose it. So I've got all those diets and all of the exercise programs that I've gathered over the years, I wrote down religiously because I, I train with a book. So I go and every exercise I do, I write down. I know there are some of us who do that. So over the years, I've gathered all of these, this information and these things. All of the programs, the four of the programs in the book are programs that I physically have done and then I then um, put my friends onto at the various levels that they were. But the, the, the fifth program, the program that I did, um, was put together by uh, a professional trainer, Cliff Mason, one of the top trainers in the country. And um, he put this program together specifically for me, um, saying that the, well, the other four said, if they're going to do it, because I've been to gym previously, I had to have a program that was twice as hard as theirs kind of idea. Uh, and uh, having put them on it, there's nothing I could say to, to persuade them that perhaps I should <laughs> do something less, <laughs> which in the long run I'm very grateful for, but at the time was very painful. Uh, and Cliff's program really is a program that is... Um, is extreme. I now, for example, now at the age of, um, of 58, I will go and I'll do 40 sets of exercises like shoulders. I did shoulders today at gym, right? I did 40 sets of shoulder exercises plus 500 uh, ab crunches plus 20 minutes cardio, and I did it all in 45 minutes. Right, so the rest of us are all hiding our heads in shame now, Tim. <laughs> I mean, really, you're making us feel really bad. <laughs> But, uh, but honestly, if you're wanting to get started, Tim's book, Fitness for Old Farts, definitely worth a read. It'll have you laughing. Um, and that could even in itself be exercise. I th- was it Nick's wife, I think you said, who broke the Guinness <laughs> record for laughing? Yes. Um, and, and you said eventually she, she had to stop because her stomach muscles seized up. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, we could maybe exercise our stomach muscles by laughing. Well, laughter, laughter is one of the – it's A, the best medicine, but B, it is an incredible exercise. Well, you read this book, you're going to definitely get some stomach muscle <laughs> exercise. So, and, and it's a wonderful time for us to be chatting about the book, Tim, in, in Men's Health Awareness Month because this is something we need men to be aware of. Absolutely. So um, how's it going so far? The book doing well? <clears throat> the book is doing very well at the moment. Um, I had uh, um, two places I've been in to see. I, I popped into, it's in exclusive books, and I went into the exclusive books in, in Cresta uh, and looked for the book, couldn't find it. So I went to the counter and said, where's my book? Fitness for old farts. You know, I don't see it on the shelf. <laughs> and they said, no, that's because it's sold out. And we reordered it, and we've sold out the reorder. So we've reordered a third time. And the other one, I went into the exclusive books at Hyde Park, and it is number nine on the bestsellers list. So wow. it's, doing, um, it's doing really well. I, I'm delighted because the more people, especially the more old farts that get this book, the better it is. I say in the book, you know, read the book. You'll, you'll, it'll be, you'll have a damn good laugh. And even if you're not going to do the exercise, it'll make a good coaster, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, they need to use the book. Hopefully all those people that have bought the book are using it and are starting out on their journey of better health this month. I certainly hope so. But Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening and good luck with the rest of the sales of the book. My pleasure for joining you. Thanks very much for having me. Clara. Only a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Right good night to you. Tim Pluman's book, Fitness for Old Farts, is published by Random House Streck and it's available, well, pretty much as Tim says, is being sold out at most of the stores. It's available, I would say, at most good bookstores. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, I was really proud to be a South African when I watched last week's episode of Grey's Anatomy on DSTV. Why? Well, the entire episode revolved around a new machine they had called a Lodox. Now, the Lodox scanner is a time-saving full-body digital X-ray imaging device, rather a mouthful, and it was developed right here in Johannesburg in Santon, in fact, in South Africa. Well, I'm joined now by Christian Dezio. He's the sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems. Christian, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Corin, and good evening to your listeners. I was, I was very proud to be a South African when I watched the show last week. I must say it was rather amazing. But the thing is, I mean, we've only just really hearing about it now, but it's been around for, what, about 11 years now? Correct. So Lodox Systems has been around for just over 10 years. Um, and we're actually now on the fourth iteration of our original development, which is called the Exemplar DR now. Yeah. Now, the most that I know about this thing is from having watched the, the episode of Grey's Anatomy. It, I mean, they were all terribly excited, as was I, and it looked amazing. 13 seconds to do a full-body scan. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So the excitement, the, the reason for the excitement is quite, is quite right. Um, what, what the system allows a trauma team to do is to, once they get a patient inside the trauma unit, is to very, very quickly, as you mentioned, 30, 13 seconds, get a full body picture of exactly what's going on, head to toe, what do we do first? Do we tackle the lungs that potentially have collapsed? Do we have massive um, fractures in the femurs, etc.? So, yeah, a, a, trauma, a trauma team will be very excited about this in real life and on Grey's Anatomy, in fact. <laughs> well, I was looking through the information as well. There are a number of them already in hospitals around South Africa. Yeah, that's correct. There's 11 hospitals in South Africa that have it. Some of the very big tertiary hospitals, um, and, and there I'm including Baraguanas, uh, Charlotte Macheke, Krutuski down in Cape Town. So, so big places get that see lots of trauma. Um, they're using it currently now, yeah. And the Red Cross Children's Hospital, I see, uh, has one as well. Yes, mm. absolutely. So this is actually rather exciting. Why do you think it's suddenly becoming a – we're becoming aware now. Why, why do you think they're suddenly focused on this on, on international television? Um, the reason that I think as South Africans we're, we're, we've sort of tacked on and latched onto the story so, so, so well is because we tend to get a lot of bad news, I think, in our yeah, country. Yeah, we do. So when a good story comes along, we really do rally behind it and, um, you know, uh, take, take it personally and, and make it our own. The reason that we were on Grays is because we actually have an installation at LA County Hospital. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so when they were writing in their script that um, they're going to redo the emergency room, they, they went to LA County and try to get a view from them as to what they should include in it. And the clinicians there said, look, if you don't have a low-doc scanner on your emergency room, then unfortunately it's not a proper emergency room. <laughs> well, that was great. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and obviously that's then gone into popular culture. If, if you had to speak to some of the trauma doctors in South Africa, they would a while ago been able to give you a very good review on the Lodox. But as the lay public, I think um, the Greys afforded us an, an excellent opportunity to sort of say, we're here, we're South African, and, and we're making waves in the world. Well, I mean, I, as I said, I was terribly proud to be South African, mm. and, and I can now go around saying the word Lodox and know oh, yeah. exactly what I'm talking about, which is amazing. <laughs> it's, become a, it's become a verb now. You, you Lodox someone. Pretty much. I mean, it's, inc <laughs> it's actually incredible. But what, what fascinates me is that it, what more wasn't made of it, or maybe it wasn't, I just missed it, but more wasn't made of this amazing technology when it was first developed 11 years ago. Correct, yeah. So, so our, our marketing essentially has been, as I said, to the, the trauma clinicians, mm. um, the, the lay public, we haven't necessarily sort of promoted it to. Um, we're glad to be in the public eye now because I think that, that people now realize that there is something that in our trauma units ultimately is going to help the trauma team, but at the same time is very good for a well, very good, is, is a lot more safe for a patient because of the very low dose. So, yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask yeah. you about. Now, the le levels of radiation are much lower with this. Absolutely. Why, you're, you're why is that? Well, because it's essentially the way that the, the x-rays are produced. Um, to cut a long story short and not to get too technical, um, we're able to produce a very, very thin beam of x-rays, which essentially scans over the patient, um, and that allows us to use a much lower dose because it tends to penetrate the body and a lot more of the 
of the x-rays are picked up by a detector. So it, it enables us to use much lower doses and still get an excellent image quality. Because, I mean, if you are using lower doses, the last thing you want is not to be able to see anything. Now, just to refer back to my sort of educational episode of Grey's Anatomy the other day, um, they, they made the comment, two comments. One was that they could use it for pregnant people. That was a pregnant woman. That was the first thing. And second, the other thing they said was, if they had to take that in a number of x-rays that they would have had to have taken to see all the injuries on this one particular person, it, they would have taken them hours because it would have been at least five or six or even ten, I can't yep. remember now, x-rays, and you got that whole thing in 13 seconds. Correct. So to deal with the pregnant, uh, the, the pregnant ladies and children, as you mentioned, we have an installation in Red Cross Children's mm. Hospital down in Cape Town. So with a child and with a pregnant lady, the lower dose you can expose them to in a trauma situation where you have to, um, you really are doing a world of good because if, if, if a pregnant lady is, is out of trauma units and you have to get imaging information, you're probably going to have to do a scan at some stage. So if you can do it at a lower dose, you're doing the, the unborn fetus a lot of good and the same thing with a developing child. So that's, that's I think, why they were really excited regarding the pregnant ladies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Regarding the number of scans that it would take you, if, if you take a normal X-ray system, what you're essentially doing is almost taking a picture, a snapshot of a certain area. I think we've, we've all been into, mm. you know, we fall off a bike or we get into some kind of a, an accident and the arm hurts. So essentially what happens is you're put into a room where they put a plate underneath your arm. The lady then adjusts you. Uh, she walks behind her lead screen and takes what is almost a snapshot of that specific area. And that's essentially what you would have to do in a trauma situation. The problem with the trauma situation is that you're dealing with a much larger area. So as the doctor said on Grey's Anatomy, you probably would have had to take five, six, in some cases maybe ten images, and then piece them together and say, what's the clinical picture we're seeing here? Do we have massive fractures? Do we have issues in the pelvis? Do we have potentially collapsed lungs? So, yeah, when you can take all of that information on a 13-second full body scan and you can make your top-to-toe diagnosis of what you're going to tackle first, second, third, up to tenth, you're not only saving time, but you're able to provide that patient with a lot better clinical um, um, picture, ultimately. So the bed that they would lie on, is that entire bed sort of like the plate? Yes, yes. Well, no, sorry, that's your carbon fiber table. Um, if, if, If you had to see a picture of our machine, what you have is a C arm, which is, pretty much anchored to a wall and it moves backwards and forwards on that wall. The top part of it is where your x-rays are produced that shoot down through the patient. The bottom part of that seat, which goes underneath the table, that's the detector. So it's almost like a moving plate, if you will. You're, you're sending x-rays and, and detecting them instantaneously as you're moving over the body from top to toe. So there's no stationary plate there. Amazing technology. Yeah, yeah. And it comes from South Africa. Isn't that just fabulous? Yeah, I don't know if you know the story. It actually was, it, it was developed on the De Beers diamond mines. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yeah. Just so, for the listeners, just explain yeah. briefly how that happened. So in, in the De Beers, essentially on the diamond mines, they, they suspected that potentially they were losing diamonds. People were either swallowing them or putting them in orifices. And what they needed to do is they commissioned a team to say, look, obviously we need to be able to look into these people um, and x-rays is the logical way of doing that. So they said, we have to do it very quickly because you've got hundreds of miners coming off a, a shift at a time. So that was one prerequisite. Second prerequisite was to be able to do it low dose because the last thing you want to do is to expose those miners to a high dosage every single day or potentially sometimes more than once a day. But very importantly, it also had to be able to see tiny, tiny diamonds within the human body. So the image quality had to be very good. So they put together an upright scanner um, called the Scanex, which is still in use today, actually, on the diamond mines. Um, and while they were doing um, <clears throat> some of the testing in, at Hurtuskir, they actually then sort of said, but hold on a second, if we put that, um, that, that concept horizontally, do we not then have a medical use for it? Um, so it, it, it really is. It's a story of South African innovation, of our ability to, to sort of think outside the box and produce something which ultimately now 
the world accepts, not just in South Africa. Well, if you look back on the list of, of inventions and discoveries that we've made and done here in this country, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And this is yet another amazing innovation. Christian, thank you very much indeed for spending some time and chatting with me about this on the show this evening. I do appreciate your time. Corinne, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Good night to Have you. Have a great evening. Good night. Christian Dezio is the sales and marketing manager for Lodox Systems. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's Lodox, L-O-D-O-X, Lodox.com. Health Matters with Karen Key. When her son Alex was 10 weeks old, Karen Moss, together with her husband Steve, headed for Iowa in the United States to consult with Dr. Ignacio Ponsetti. Now, baby Alex had been born with congenital clubfoot and wanting to avoid major surgery, his parents decided to pursue a non-surgical solution. Well, this story has a very happy ending, not just for baby Alex, but for children across Southern Africa. Karen Moss started the Steps Charity and she joins me now. Karen, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thanks. Well, this, first of all, I think just let's just explain to the listeners exactly what clubfoot is because there's a couple of different possible reasons and causes and types of clubfoot. Yes, um, the most common one is called congenital clubfoot, and, it, and it's also called idiopathic, which means it's not really linked to any other syndrome or cause, and, and the cause is not really known either. It's environmental and genetic combination, um, and it's basically the foot is, is, um, starts to develop, the, the whole ankle starts to twist while the baby's developing, and essentially the foot's almost upside down once they're born and turned in and they have a very tight um, Achilles tendon, so there's almost the heel is pulled right into the foot as well. And in Alex's case, yeah, he had uh, what they call bilateral club foot, which is both feet turned in like that. Um, it can also be unilateral, where there's only one foot that's club foot, the other one is is a normal foot. And um, they've found out in studies that it's normally about two to one boys to girls. It's more common in boys than girls. It's not as rare as people might think. No, it's actually the most common musculoskeletal condition, and it's one of the highest birth defects that, that there is. It's in South Africa, particularly South and East African population, we have the second highest rate in the world, um, and it's about two per thousand. The average is one in every 750 births is, around the world. It, it just seems ridiculous that we us here in South Africa would have the highest rate of this in the world. I mean, it, you sort of wonder why. I know. Uh, uh, the, 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 the highest is Polynesia. It's about six per thousand, and we're the second. And I don't really know, um, I don't think anyone knows why. Um, it's obviously some genetic um, cause, and some, sometimes it's to do with environment as well. So it could be where we live. But um, I suppose time will tell once they finish doing all their research. There are research studies going on in different countries trying to work out what, what causes it and why it sometimes runs in families and sometimes it's a completely isolated case with no history of it at all. So tell us what happened. Alex was born and you discovered that he was born with a club foot. Obviously it wasn't picked up during scans. No, it scans. wasn't picked up when, um, um, before he was born and obviously it was a big shock to us and we didn't really know much about it, um, which most people don't. And you kind of hear about a club foot, but you know, it sort of goes back to sort of Dickens times, you're not really sure what it is. And um, he had, we were referred to an orthopedic surgeon, pediatric specialist, and he started to have casts. His first one was at eight days old. And when, by the time he was eight weeks old, we were told to prepare ourselves for Clubfoot surgery, which was um, in those days, 10 years ago, a major operation where they would open up the foot and cut all the, um, a lot of the tendons, move the ankle bones around. It's, it's basically restructuring the foot from cutting into the foot and, and moving stuff around. What happens with that kind of surgery is you land up with what's essentially looks like a normal foot as, you know, as they've done it, but the problem is there's a lot of scarring in the foot. And it can lead to a lot of problems later in life. In fact, even from teenage years, pain, more operations, arthritis, that type of thing that they've discovered, you know, when they've done studies. So you were told that you should prepare yourself for this operation. And yes. being a mother pretty much like myself is looking for any other option than sending your child off for a major operation. So you decided to start doing your own research. You know, I'd had a major car accident when I was 18. I had a lot of reconstructive surgery, and I suppose that was part of my kind of wanting to not let my son go through any kind of surgery and I had a kind of gut feel and wish I suppose that I could find an alternative and, and I went on the internet 
and found this man, Dr. Ponsetti, just through sheer kind of luck, I think, because although he'd been doing the method for over 50 years, it was very um, relatively unknown around the world. But because of the advances of the Internet, some parents had found out about him in America and started a support group called No Surgery for Club Foot, and they had actually taken their children to Iowa to have them treated, and I came across this link and then was extremely excited, thinking well, I found something for my son. And then when I saw that he'd, he'd actually started in the 1950s, I thought, well, then he can't be practicing anymore. So I went through all kinds of emotions, you know, wondering what I was going to do. And it turned out that he was still practicing. He was 89 years old. 89? Yes. <laughs> so I sent him an email <laughs> okay. and photos of our son's feet. And I phoned the two days later because it was on a weekend and just to confirm that the email had gone through to America, and he came on the phone, this, this doctor, Ponsetti, um, and he just said to me, well, you, you must bring your son to me, I'll fix his feet. You were on the next plane, practically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Within just over a week, we were on our way. But, well, you know, reading through the whole story, Karen, I find it really quite bizarre, and I understand once I've read further into the, into the, into the information, that this amazing technique has been around for so long, and yet it's almost unknown. Yeah, I think it, from what I've understood from talking to doctors, because I work quite a lot with doctors now since I've got so involved in it, um, it his, his work sort of coincided with the advances of surgery. So, you know, in the 50s and 60s, clubfoot surgery became much more um, intricate and involved, and there were, you know, more successes, but nobody really knew the long-term effects of it. So surgeons are, are trained to do what they're taught in medical school, um, and they tend to, to stay by that unless something is proven to them to have a different um, result. And he started to publish his results, but he was in the Midwest in Iowa, and, um, and he was Spanish-speaking. He wasn't very well-known. And I think it just it just became, you know, he, something he was kind of ignored, so he just thought, well, let me carry on and do it. And, and a few doctors did find him and went through, through to him and were trained by him and started using it. But it was really only in sort of the early um, 20, uh, 21st century that, that things started to happen. Now, um, you, you mentioned at, at the beginning that, that Alex was casted when he was very young, um, but this is also a form of casting. What is the difference between the original sort of what we would all expect the casting to be and the Ponsetti method? From what I understand, um, I've, I've done training and, and listened to a lot of talks about this. Um, obviously, I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand about the, the difference is the, the old style casting was, was based on a method called the kite method, which would basically try and stretch the foot as far as possible. We were told by his first surgeon that this casting would, wouldn't really straighten the foot. It only worked for a very small majority, but it would stretch the skin and get veins and things ready for cutting. Um, and that, that type of casting is what they would do is fix the heel and then push the, the front of the foot to the side to try and straighten the front. But actually, the deformities in the ankle, so by holding the heel still, they were stopping the ankle from ever turning into another position. So it was almost counterproductive. It didn't really get the foot straight in most of the cases. And then they would operate. Um, the difference also is that the... Old-style casting was up to the knee, which didn't really stabilize the foot, whereas the Ponsetti casting is you, you leave the ankle free to swivel, and you, it's very specific where you put your hands on these tiny little bones in the baby's foot, which is, takes a lot of skill and in initially in, in working it out. And once you, you felt that, then the doctors know exactly what they're looking for. And the, the bones actually turn almost like in a mechanism into the right position from, from the way that you're holding them. And then they apply a cast which goes right up to the groin and it's bent at 90 degrees at the knee. So the foot is kept in a very specific position for a week. Then they take the cast off and they repeat it. And it normally takes between five and six casts to get the foot completely straight without surgery. And then what they tend to do is a very small procedure where they clip the back of the heel with a, it can be done under local anesthetic. They clip the Achilles tendon, the heel drops and the actual foot is recast in that position, and the, and the Achilles tendon regenerates in a baby. If you do that to an adult, it's not the same <laughs> Wouldn't, effect. No. <laughs> but it does work in a baby. So this is less than two months? Yes. And after that, what you came home, and what? Well, after that, um, that's when it depends a lot on the parents, because 
the doctors have done their part and the foot is straight. We came home with Alex, but we came home with a brace for his feet. And what it is is a pair of shoes attached to a bar at a specific angle and a specific width. And that what, what causes the foot to turn in stays active and it can relapse. Even after surgery, it can relapse and the foot can start turning in again. So this is a brace that the child wears initially for a full time, almost for three months while they're babies, and then they start to reduce the wear, and then it, it just ends up being at night time. And it works sort of like an orthodontic brace would. It just, you know, holds things in the right position and pushes the feet into the, keeps them in the, it's a retainer. And um, at the age of four, most children are no longer sleeping in the brace, and they, the chance of relapse then is, is, is very minimal. And then you did something really spectacular. You came back and, and decided that you were going to share this. Yes, I think... Um, I've often wondered why I did that, and I think it was probably because I'd seen both experiences, and, and I just thought I can't come back and, and know that my child's okay and the other children aren't. <laughs> and I, and I, it's not that I'm a, you know, that kind of person naturally, or well, maybe I am, but it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I just had this drive to, because of what I had gone through, I didn't want those other children to experience that. So I tried to work out. In fact, also, it wasn't even up to me so much as Dr. Ponsetti basically insisted that I had to take it back oh. to South Africa. <laughs> he, he said to me, you're the first South African here, and he gave me a whole pile of reference materials and said, no, please go and get it into South Africa, because he knew we had a high rate. So I had his support from the start, and then a sort of networked with a couple of doctors who were interested, or maybe... It took a while to, to get into that. It probably took about four months before I could um, convince them. And then it, it's gradually grown from then to a whole network. In fact, now it's, it's, the, it's the, actually the standard treatment in South Africa. And if people listening to this, Karen, who have possibly got a child or a baby with this condition, um, they can go onto your website, would they contact you? Would you be able to assist them as to where to go to get this done for their child? How does your charity work? Yes, we definitely would be able to do that. We've, we know a lot of the doctors. Um, we also have a parent support group. There's a lot of active parents on there who can give a, their experiences. Um, there's doctors that have done training with us. There's doctors that have been trained by doctors who've learnt the, the method um, and there's, in all the main centres, you can get good care. Um, and it's always better to go to somebody who's doing a lot of this kind of treatment because they've just got, you know, they're, they're more practised at it um, because it is very much hands-on. You know, it's like anything with massage. Or you, you've got to keep constantly doing it to really be good at it. So you don't want to go to somebody who does one club foot a year. You want to go to a busy practice, and we know who those people are, and they can, we can recommend parents, you know, people to try to go to for treatment. And it's not just South Africa. I gather you've sort of broadened it out to Southern Africa now. Yes, it, it, that was something that came thanks to our involvement with an, an American NGO, also started by parents, called Miracle Feet. And their focus is Clubfoot, and they raise money to support Clubfoot treatment in developing countries. Um, and we've been basically started a program with them early this year, and with their help, Financially, we've been able to do a lot more work in the region. What was happening before was that um, this method hadn't got to Namibia and Botswana and neighbouring countries, so either children were not treated at all, or they would come across the border with parents, you know, for treatment in one of our hospitals, which is obviously very inconvenient and expensive for those families and stressful. So we thought, well, why not take the method into those countries? We've just done training in Botswana and we are in partnership with the Ministry of Health and the next country is Namibia. We're already supporting a clinic there and setting up a national program which should be running by the end of the year. Well, I have to congratulate you. I mean, you are doing sterling work and, you know, all started with yourself and your own personal experience. And I think a lot of times when parents go through personal experiences like you have, they tend to want to pay it forward. You know, they've had a success and it's a case of, well, you know, let me see if I can help other people. And you've done just that and well done. Congratulations on the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. And I, I get a lot of, uh, it's very rewarding work and I, I do enjoy it. And I've had a lot of help from different people. And I think when you go through an experience like this, it kind of also gives it meaning that you are mm. doing something with that experience instead of, you know, 
moving on. <laughs> well, Karen, I have, can I, it's steps.org.za and it can, what is the clubfoot.co.za? Is that another website yeah, that they can have a, a look at? That was a website that I started when I came back from America and okay. that just really got a lot of information about Clubfoot. So okay, so it's like a sister website, but our organization is steps.org.za. Okay. So um, any inf- and if anyone wants to contact us, there is a phone number on there as well on the website and um, we're always here to help however we can. Oh, that's wonderful. Long may your work continue. And uh, thank you very much indeed for your time this evening and joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. And I hope that um, a lot of people will be in contact so we can give I, them some I hope, Hopefully <laughs> you've given a lot of people hope out there, people that thought there wasn't any hope and now you've given them that. So well, thank you very much. That's true. It's a good news story, like you said at the beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thanks, then. Thanks, Karen. Good, good night. night. Karen Moss is the founder and director of Steps Charity. And if you'd like more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.steps.org.za. And there's also a sister website, she said, and that's called www.clubfoot.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, in a perfect world, all babies would have access to their mother's milk, the ideal food for babies. Well, in reality, this is not always possible, and for many reasons, a new mother may be unable to give her own milk to her baby. Well, Milk Matters is an organization supplying donor breast milk to hospitals for these premature babies. And Jenny Wright is the Milk Matters coordinator. Jenny, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen, and good evening to your listeners. Now, this is something, as we've discussed before we came on air, that that a lot of people in the day, back in the day where you mentioned human breast milk donation would look at you and say, excuse me what but the, the word is slowly starting to filter out there that this is something that can be done and it's making a huge difference in the lives of these prem babies it really is making a huge difference for these babies it can undoubtedly be life-saving it's not a nice to have for them it's something that they really need the babies that we supply are the very premature babies they are under 1.5 kilograms and when you think that three to three and a half kilograms is average for a newborn full-term baby it just gives an idea of how tiny they are and they really aren't ready for the world and they need breast milk there are potentially fatal complications that they're particularly prone to and breast milk can help to prevent that so that's where we come in if their mother isn't able to provide them with the breast milk that they need which is obviously first choice and the best for them then milk from another mother who generously donates her milk can really make the difference between life and death for them so how does this actually work jenny people sitting there thinking well how how do you get the milk to the baby how do you pick your donors how does this all work How it works is that mums who are breastfeeding their own babies contact us if they have extra breast milk, and it is extra breast milk. Their baby needs to come first. We certainly don't want them donating milk at the expense of their own baby. Um, And so they contact us, and we have depots around Cape Town and even some nearby towns. And the mums can go and collect sterile containers there, just making it a little bit easier for them. And they fill in a screening form, and we ask them to have an HIV and hepatitis B blood test done, which is done at our expense, not theirs. And that's just one of the safety measures that we take. They express the milk at home and freeze it. And then when they're ready, they can drop off a batch of milk at a depot. And for the mums who are not able to get to a depot, we do our best to make another plan and go and collect milk from them and drop off jars. The milk is then brought to us at head office and we pasteurize all the milk. We also take samples from each batch. Uh, Milk is not mixed from multiple donors. It's all one mother's milk um, in one batch. And we take a a sample and test that for bacteria. And only once we've got all of that back and it's all safe, then that milk is sent to state and private hospitals for these very tiny premature babies. We need to make this clear up front. This is a donation. Nobody's getting paid for anything. No, nobody's nobody's getting paid for their breast milk. We can't take the risk of people wanting to sell the milk instead of giving it to their own babies. And the temptation is there if, if you really are battling. Um, and we also don't want people to, you know, to be adding anything to the milk or anything like that. So it is moms who genuinely want to help babies. And obviously we screen the moms and we screen the milk and it's all incredibly safe. Now people might wonder about the age of their baby compared to the prem baby. Is there a difference in the in the milk quality? If your baby is, say, a couple of months old and there's this very prem baby, is there a problem there? No, there isn't a problem. Um, There's no difference in quality, but there is a difference in what the components of the milk, how much fats and, and all the different things. It changes 
according to the age of the baby, it changes from one mother to another. It changes from one day to another, depending on what a particular mother needs. But the basics are still there. And it is still far better for, for a baby to get breast milk, whether it's from um, a donor mother with a baby of a different age, than to have to get artificial milk. And these babies thrive on it. And, you know, for, for the people who are told that breast milk, once your baby's a year old, has no nutritional value, I can tell you that our babies um, that get donor milk from mums who've got a baby or a year old thrive. It's it's so good for them. It still has all those immune factors. It has all the growth factors. It has the protection that they need. Now, mothers who sign up to do this, do they have to donate every day? Do they have to express every day? How does it work? No. Um, there's no set amount they have to donate. Basically, 50 mil will feed a baby of under a kilogram for 24 hours. And since all the babies that get the milk are under 1.5 kilograms, you can see how many babies can be fed. And it's up to the mother exactly how often she expresses. Some moms do do it every day because it tends to be that if you express at that time, your body is expecting to produce that amount of milk. So it just makes it easier. And the moms find having a routine of this is the time of day they express to donate works for them. But others express when they can a few every few days. It, it really is up to them. We're just so grateful for every drop of milk that we get because literally every drop counts. How do you store it once they have, have expressed the milk? What do they do? They freeze it? They, they put freeze, it in the fridge? They do freeze it? They freeze it. within. It needs to go into the fridge and it needs to be frozen within 24 hours. And then... Um, it's it's man, the cold chain being maintained is really important. We can't have it defrosting and being refrozen, um, you know, en route. And um, then we pasteurize, and unless it's being used immediately, then it's frozen and supplied to the hospitals, and then they defrost it as they need it. So the mothers would freeze it and then transport it to you frozen, or you, if yes. they can't get you, you would collect it and yes. it would still be in the frozen state. Yes. Okay. That's right. right. Okay. So how many babies, more or less, do you help with this? We, well, we supply five to six liters on average per day um, to the various hospitals. So when you work it out that it's, it's 50 to 100 mil per day per baby, that's a lot of babies lot being of babies. fed. Wow. Yes, it's okay. a lot. We tend to think that when you see in the newspapers the 800 gram baby, the story about that, that that's the only baby. But these Babies are being born every day. There's so many risk factors. And it is just astounding how many of these really tiny premature babies are being born. And unfortunately, not all their mothers are in a position to supply the milk they need. Some of these moms are incredibly sick themselves. Um, we recently had a baby who was getting donor milk. He was born at 690 grams, which is a fifth of a, an average healthy full-term baby. And his mother was terribly ill, and she had to be rushed to an intensive care unit in a different hospital. So this poor little chap was so early. His mother wasn't there. She couldn't supply any milk. And um, the donor milk was a lifeline for him. And they were reunited when she'd recovered. She went home breastfeeding. He went home at 1.7 kilos, which seems tiny, but compared to what he started it's out double. at. It's yes. more than double. And the doctors have no doubt, his mother has no doubt, that the donor milk saved him. Now, do they, does the hospital contact you when they have situations like this? Yes, they do. And the milk is on prescription because we want to make sure that it's the babies who need it most. All babies need it. We would love to be in the position, and we dream of the day that we're in the position to supply to any baby who doesn't have access to milk. But right now, we have to prioritize and use the milk to help as many babies as possible and the babies most at risk if they don't get it. Um, so we need to make sure that it's those babies. And also we don't want to undermine breastfeeding. So breast, donor milk can't be too easily accessible so that mums feel they don't need to make the effort or staff feel that they, you know, they don't really need to encourage the mums. So the staff really encourage the mums to express for their own babies. And it's really an interim thing to get the donor milk. Um, and then hopefully the mum can, can take over from there. How long do the babies normally stay on the donor milk for? I mean, is it a limited time? Because obviously if you, you have such a limited supply, and as you say, there's almost a baby being born every day that needs this, is there a limited time that you put this baby on the donor milk? 
it is a limited time. It isn't normally, we can't say for sure it's for two weeks or three weeks. For the moms who've had multiples, usually it's only for a couple of days that they need milk if they need it at all. But sometimes they just need that little bit of help while they're getting the supply up to feed triplets. And so then it would only be a couple of days. But for a mom who's terribly ill and has a very tiny 600, 700 gram baby, then it might be a bit longer. And it also depends on the baby and how well they're doing. If they are showing signs that they're really struggling, then the doctors will do all they can to keep that baby on the breast milk. But they have to assess each situation and it depends how much milk we have available. It's almost a case, a case, it is a case by case situation. It is a case by case and it's also how much milk we've got. So there are times when we simply don't have as much as they need and the doctors have to look at the babies and decide which babies most badly need that milk. So that's where we really appeal to anybody who is in a position to help mm. us to donate because they're 50 mil or 100 mil, you know, that can feed a baby who might otherwise not be able to get donor milk. Now I was going to ask you, how do people go about signing up to become a donor? They can phone us, they can email us, and we'll send them the information about donating. We'll tell them where the nearest depot is and, um, and, and give them all the information and the forms that they need. And it really, we try and make it as easy as possible. Is it only in Cape Town at this stage, or have you got depots around the country? We are Western Cape, mainly Cape Town, but we also have depots in Stellenbosch, Somerset West, Hermanus, um, and... And nothing in much in the rest of the country, unfortunately. No, but there are other milk banks in Durban and Johannesburg. So if people um, contact us, we always put them in touch with any milk bank that we know of. There's a milk bank in George. So we do try and, and get them to go to the nearest milk bank where there is one. Okay, so if you're not in Cape Town as such, I will give out all the contact details in a moment, and you're somewhere else in the country, you're very welcome to call them. Absolutely. And they will put you in touch with the nearest one. Oh, but definitely. It is a vital service, and it's, you'll be really literally saving a life. Literally saving a life. So you had your recent uh, Milk Bank Awareness, Human Milk Bank Week, that was not that long ago. And uh, this is really all just to create more awareness and to let people know that the service is out there. It is. And to help people to come to the realization that all this extra milk that they have will actually go to saving these little babies. It will. And also for people to realize they don't need to have huge amounts in mm. order to donate. Just 50 ml, it's a couple it's of tablespoons. It's not a lot at all. No, it's a couple of tablespoons. And that really can feed a baby for a day. It's hard to imagine, but it really can. And that can make the difference between life and death for these little babies. So we need to get people out there to, to go out there. And this is your do your service. You know, we talk about Mandela and the 20 hours of service. Well, it won't take you 20 hours. Just take a few minutes and you're doing your, your 67 mil. Yeah, do your, there you go, 67 <laughs> mils a day, not too much. And as we said, we'll be saving a number of lives and uh, Absolutely. we need to get more people onto the registry to because people obviously aren't going to be if once they're on aren't going to be on there forever they're going no. to just be on there until they finished breastfeeding that's right and then they stop and we need more people to replenish the list that's right so you're constantly needing and there new are donors also, there are also ways that people can help us if they're not breastfeeding because obviously not all of us are breastfeeding but mm. we still want to help so people are welcome to contact us if they would like to sponsor anything we're on the my school my village my oh, planet right. program okay. mm. So we can be nominated as a beneficiary. It doesn't cost anybody anything. And that's just as valuable because as a nonprofit, the funding is always an issue. So we welcome any support like that. Every cent counts just as much as every drop of milk in feeding babies. Very important work you're doing, Jenny. And uh, hopefully, if I'm going to give out the contact details now, please do get in touch with them if there's any way that you can help. Not As as Jenny said, if you're not breastfeeding at the moment, there's lots of other ways that you can help them. So you can give them a call or email them, have a look at their website. Lots and lots of different things that you can possibly do. Jenny, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Hopefully, we've, we've awakened the uh, consciousness of a lot of people out there. We'll uh, hopefully get in touch with you quite soon. Thank you so much, Karen, for the opportunity, and we look forward to hearing from all your listeners. I hope so. Jenny Wright is the Milk Matters Coordinator, and if you'd like to find out more about this amazing work that they do, you can take a look at their website. It's www.milkmatters.org. You can email them at info at milkmatters.org, and their two phone numbers, it's 021-659-5599, 021-659-5599, or there's a cell number, 082 895 8004 082 895 
0614-8004. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM.